Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. In chapter 2 are topics that flat out divide the church. They're highly controversial. They get people ticked off and angry. Uh, it just happens. And you all know me pretty well, and especially you know my wife. I don't get into those kinds of controversies. I just don't. But for me, it's about loving people and, and, and loving the Word of God and loving the kingdom. That said, I don't get that upset if we disagree on things about like sex and marriage and the Sabbath and those sorts of things. I'm totally cool with that. The whole point is take notes and then let's talk about it afterwards. But I really don't take it personally. I do have an opinion, and for me that opinion works fine, and it's worked for 30 years. So it's something that I'm, I, most of my opinion comes out of what I read in the Word of God. And other people read it differently, and I totally get that. So when we start talking about Sabbath, and those of you, like, it's easy to step on toes, because I'll take what the Word of God says, and the way Steph and I have kind of handled Sabbath through our life, I'll tell you how we approach it and how we handle it. Um, but there are clearly multiple ways to handle the Sabbath as a topic and how we do it in our own life. What I think we need to know is what the Bible says about it. And then do what, work with that however you can. And it's really between you and God as to how you deal with the Sabbath. And you shouldn't feel like you care one whit what I think about it at the end. But I want you to know what the Bible says about it. And from there you can, you know, you can operate how you want. Same thing with marriage and sex and all these other kinds of things, which are really hot-button topics right now today. So we'll get into them, we'll know what the Bible says about them, and then we can live our lives and dig into whatever kinds of things we want with that. that that's like a terrifying setup. I'm just <laughs> about that. Um, but I just, I've seen people get really worked up about this sort of thing. And to me, that kind of controversy isn't from the Spirit of God. Um, the Spirit of God is love, and love is patient, love is kind. Uh, love withstands things, and and I and a lot of times I think the enemy uses controversy to divide the church, um, and we'll see that, and I'll show it to you in the Bible where that happened to Jesus, and the, the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus came around marriage and Sabbath, and these topics were the things they crucified the guy over, which just blows me blows me away. Like who cares if you rest this way or that way on the Sabbath? But it's what they decided they were going to kill Jesus over. So it is something that really it gets people cued off. And if you haven't run into those people yet, just live another 10 years hanging out with church people. They'll, you'll eventually run into it. So we're going to cover those sorts of things. So we're in Genesis 2. and um, But I'll review real quick because it's the teacher in me. I think it's healthy to go back and review. Genesis 1, we talked about humans getting created, that um, they seem to be the focus of Genesis 1, the purpose of all of creation was to put humans in it. And it's from the human perspective that we see creation. That's how God tells us about it. The problem that God had is that he looked at the world, remember, without form, and it had void. And he didn't like that chaos. So he was going to create order out of chaos. And humans were ultimately the, the main target of that. And in some ways, our job as after creation is to create order out of chaos. 
we're supposed to garden and we're supposed to bring truth and we're supposed to do good things and we're supposed to organize things and God gives us gifts to do that in different ways um, and that gets played out I think I was thinking about the last two weeks myself I think in my own life the battle is order out of chaos it's taking this formless sense of laziness and sloth and blah and turning it into a purpose and that's part of what God's done in my life over the years is I feel like I have purpose that I didn't have and I think that plays out that creation act plays out in every one of our lives and I especially think for college students like what's the meaning of your life and what's your purpose and where are you headed and that's part of what God is doing in your life and the work that he has to do in your life is help you get that perfect clarity of this is what I'm doing and this is how I'm doing it. And when you get there, you like turn around and you realize you're not 20 anymore. And it feels awesome. Like adulthood is really cool because it comes with this sense of mission that I didn't have, you know, going into that process. Are you going to sit on the floor the whole time? Like, I'll give you my chair. I can sit on the floor too. No, I'm totally comfortable. Okay. Um, Gen- so we'll get to Genesis 2. We're dealing with Sabbath at the beginning. Um, and we'll get there. So I'll start on verse 1 of Genesis 2. Thus, thus being a word that says, because of everything that just happened in the last chapter, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So it says God rested a few times here. Again, we see a three or a triad. Um, and in, in the first chapter of Genesis, we saw that in the form of God, Elohim, the light, and the spirit that hovers. We saw a three-part God. And it's interesting that in this, we see three parts or three mentions that God is resting or ending his work. So did God get tired? Is one of the initial things. So is God wore out after creating the world? And that um, most theologians believe God's omnipotent or all-powerful. And if you have utter and total power, then you don't wear out. So resting here has something other to do than being burnt out or tired. The other thing is if God sustains everything that he made, so he's holding the atoms together, he's separating the firmament from the firmaments and the waters from the waters, he doesn't totally stop working on the Sabbath because he actually sustains the universe. So if he truly stopped everything would fall back apart, according to Genesis 1. So if you're sticking to the rules of it. So since this day, we see kind of a deterioration. If you look at the second law of thermodynamics, everything's slowing down and it's wearing out. But at this point in creation, everything's new. And it's brand new, and God's kind of sustaining those things. So when God rests on the seventh day, it's the best the world will ever look. It had to be beautiful. And so we'll get to the Garden of Eden in a second. So rest here is simply to repose or to stop from exertion or to celebrate or to keep or hold on to something. So when we look at this idea of Sabbath and rest, I love all those because to stop from exertion can't be the right one because God's omnipotent. To repose or sit back can't be the one because he still sustains the universe. So the other ways the Hebrews use this world is to celebrate or to keep and hold on to something. And those two things seem to make a lot of sense in this passage. God's celebrating this idea that now we have a purpose to the universe. Now there's order, and now there's these humans that have some sort of free will to do something. So God continues to watch over or to celebrate what's been made here. Um, 
The day seven is a connotation in the Hebrew world. You all know what seven means? Or have you seen the numerology or any familiarity with that? So every number in Hebrew has a meaning to it besides its quantitative number. And the number seven actually means complete or finished. Um, the number eight, for instance, is new beginnings, which makes it, so all of this kind of fits with creation. So there's this idea that things start anew on a day, on an eighth day or an eighth day. Uh, Jesus, for instance, is a new beginning, and the name Jesus is divisible by eight. There's mathematicians that really get into this. In fact, every translation of Jesus, Jehovah, um, Yahweh are all divisible by eight, and because there's a new beginning there. So it's there's people that get really into that. I don't. My dad does. And if you talk to Grandpa Dickers, he can tell you all sorts of that sort of thing. And there's people that look at the Bible and they like take the number of, because every letter also has a numerical count and you can do add up and stuff like that. So like the whole book of Mark, if you divide it and look at the middle thing, like there's, it's, there's stuff and then there's exactly this many numbers before and this many after. And then if you divide it by another theme, it does the exact same thing in the other direction. And, you, and that, for mathematicians, blows their mind because it's a perfectly written book. It'd be almost impossible. Like, I can do haiku, where I do, like, so many consonants in a few lines, but to do an entire book where it perfectly balances is just really weird. So there's a lot of that sort of thing. It's, it's here, too. I'm just mentioning it. In case you're interested, that's all over in the creation account, are these numbers and the way it adds up, and, it, and, and it's, it's perfect poetry in addition to being something that somebody like me can just read. Um, Colossians 2. What I want to do is Sabbath, and, and I'll, I'm going to make the argument and, I'm, and, I'll, and show you some passages here. Sabbath exists before the law. And this is the point Jesus makes later when he's tested on this, because they're talking about like what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath. And when we get into the law, that's where a lot of Christians struggle, because the law is really, you can't even move dirt and drop a seed into it. Like That counts as planting things. So in the camp, one of the guys got in trouble because he was cheating on that and doing things on the Sabbath. Um, but God models the Sabbath before he commands it, and I think that's kind of a neat idea, the fact that God of the universe can stop and celebrate and hold on to what's been done. We can do the same thing. We can stop and celebrate what's been done. Thus the question, what have you done this week? What happened this week? What's new for you this week? What is, what is God doing? And to take one day of the week and just stop and reflect I think sometimes people feel like God doesn't talk to them, but then you ask what they do on their Sabbath, and they're too busy on their Sabbath to actually stop and listen and spend time with God. So we'll go. Th- I'm going to go through a few different passages here if you got your notes ready. Um, the first time we see the law, um, we see Sabbath, which exists prior to the law, in Exodus 16, the Israelites are asked to gather double manna. You know the manna would fall from heaven? They're asked to go gather a double portion of it on Saturday or the day before the Sabbath, wherever they had that. Um, and the manna didn't deteriorate. Every other day of the week it would deteriorate. So this is a flat-out miracle. It doesn't make any you know, scientific sense. But one day a week they're supposed to gather two portions, and then God had foods they didn't have to go gather on the seventh day. In Exodus 20, we see the Sabbath pop up again on the Ten Commandments. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. 
and in it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant or your employees nor your cattle nor your stranger that's in your gates. You don't make your guests do work on a Sunday. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, which is a reference to what we're reading now, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, because God rested, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there's something more to this day, this Sunday that we're sitting in right now, where it's actually a blessed day. And there's something special about Sundays, or there should be something special about Sundays. When you look at nations that are not Jewish or Christian, the idea of a, a Sunday being sacred or special starts to get diminished. And a lot of times, I think it's interesting that even the cattle don't have to work on a Sunday, which, why would the cattle care? But it's something that's just this idea of everything needs a break and everything needs to rest. Um, in Exodus 21, I'll do a few more of these. Now these are the judgments which you set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free and pay nothing. So if you're going to have somebody work for you or, or buy someone, which was the economy back then, According to Jewish law, you're supposed to set them free after six years. Which, think of world slavery if they would have just listened to the law. Like, you wouldn't have, like, you have freedom after six years of labor, you're free. Go do and do your thing. So there's this idea of letting people go, even the people that we that we have working for us or employees. Um, again, one of the first things a company will do is make people work on Sundays. If they can, they start to do it. So it's interesting when you see companies that actually honor that. Here's another one. Not only should we enjoy Sabbath, should our employees enjoy Sabbath, but the earth itself, if we're farmers or gardeners, we should give the soil a chance to take a break. And in Exodus 23, we have this in the law too. Six years shall you sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest, rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people can eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field can eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey can rest, and the son of your female servant, I don't know where they get that, and the stranger may be refreshed. Everybody deserves a break. How many college students do we know and that we have in our lives where Sundays are like it's still a work day, and we have profs that demand that work be handed in on Monday first thing? And what are we doing to ourselves as a community and as a culture when we don't honor a day that God has said, I'm going to bless this day for you? Okay, here's another one. I'm gonna, this is where it gets convicting. You can get mad at me if you want. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Exodus 31. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. In other words, this did not go away with the New Testament. It's a perpetual covenant with anyone who considers himself a child of God. It's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. And in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. We're actually supposed to do it. This is where the Pharisees got all worked up, because it's a command, and we're supposed to do it. Okay? And I think the Pharisees made an honest mistake here, because you see these things and then you forget the original plan was for us to rest. The Sabbath was made for us, is what Jesus said. So whether or not you keep the Sabbath, you're supposed to. It's a covenant not just for you to get a break, but it's for you to have time with God. There's a perpetual covenant with God that you're supposed to keep. So 
we give our lives to the Lord or say, Jesus, you can have my life, it's yours. And then we don't do things like that. We lose this opportunity once a week for God to speak into our life and give us a plan for our life. And we get more confused and we start to lose focus. And the week gets out, spins out of control and things get hectic and anxiety goes up. And it happens again and again. And it's not just, it's everybody. It's every, it's our friends, people in, in middle age and late age. It happens to everybody. Retired people don't have that problem. Even in the season when we most want to harvest, rest is a key element for our relationship with God. Exodus 34. Six days shall you work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, the busiest times of the year, still rest. doesn't matter if it's finals week. Take the break. Take the B instead of the A, and God will bless your life. I'm not saying that as your problem. <laughs> Again, when Moses' face is shining, it's the first thing that comes out of his mouth when he talks. Remember when he comes down from the mountain, he spent all this time with God, writing volumes of stuff? When he comes down off the mountain, it's the first thing that comes out of his mouth is this Sabbath. And it's the first real thing that's coming out of God's mouth is that he takes this day of rest and shows us that even God can take a day to celebrate and enjoy Verse 1 in Exodus 35, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together, and he said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, and on the seventh day shall be a holy day for you. And that's what the point Jesus made, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. It's for you, and it's for you to be with the Lord. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. That's a serious command. And that's what the Pharisees wanted to crucify. That's the law, and they wanted to go to crucify Jesus because of it. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. You don't even make a fire on the Sabbath. So you really need to trust the Lord's going to give you good weather. Because even in the Middle East, it does get cold at night sometimes. So rest is one of the final goals of creation. It's the seventh day. It's the completeness of it. And we're supposed to celebrate what God's done. So Sabbath in itself is a kind of celebration of God's creation. Why is it so key for God to give us this day? And why is it so important for us? So I'll get to the Jesus stuff. I'll give you those verses too. This is where years go by, hundreds of years go by, and that gets baked into the Jewish population. Nothing on a Sunday. And if you work on Sunday, we'll kill you. So it was hardcore, right? Um, John 5, 8 get another piece of Sabbath kind of study here. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. He heals this guy, right? This is the guy that came through the roof and whatever and God heals him, or Jesus heals him. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who is cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. Now, I read you everything the Old Testament has to say about the Sabbath. It does not say you can't carry your bed, right? So some of these rules, the Pharisees made thousands of rules on top of what I just read you. That were, oh, welcome, Shadow. <laughs> made thousands of rules about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Because what would happen is people didn't have a heart of celebration or rest, so they started to tweak it. Like they would drop something on the ground that would make a divot, and then they would accidentally drop a seed in the ground to keep planting right? Or they would spit to water the seed, and but they just had to spit. It wasn't real work. So people didn't have a, like they were doing Sabbath, but they weren't doing it with the right heart. They were doing it with a heart where I have to do Sabbath, not I get to do Sabbath. 
So the Pharisees started making up all these rules, like you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath, you can't do this on the Sabbath, you can't do that. And ultimately the Pharisees created a world that was oppressive, because now it's a prison cell. Sabbath is this day where you can't do anything, you have to just sit there and look at a wall. And it was miserable, and the, there would be people that would kind of tweak it, but these Pharisees would run around in every town, and they would be the legal people that would say what you can do and what you can't do, and they used it as a tool of oppression, which humans do this. We still do this today. Um, and Jesus, of course, was sticking to the Old Testament stuff. So it goes on, verse 15 in John 5. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, and they sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father's been working until now, and I've been working. So I've never stopped working. And in other words, if God's sustaining the universe, God didn't stop working on the Sabbath. He rested, he celebrated, he held these things dear. So work and rest aren't exclusive of each other. It just depends on what you're doing and how you're doing it, and frankly, the spirit you do it with. So hopefully this is maybe not so controversial. If you have to get some homework done on a Sunday and you do it, that's great. Is that the pattern? Are you relying on Sundays to get that homework done? If it's an emergency and you gotta get things done and you can't have peace till it's finished, well, take the day and get it done. But hopefully the goal of your life, the heart of your life, is that you do have one day a week where you keep it sacred. I'll tell my own stories too. This is one of the best ways to share your faith with non-Christian people. And in the workplace for me all the time, it was, you know, well, this, this, that, and they'll say, well, yeah, we can do stuff, but Saturday, Sunday is kind of a family day. We kind of honor God during that day in my family. And it's fun because non-Christians are like, what are you, what? What are you talking about? It's like, well, you know, we try to just go for a hike or do something just together as a family, and that's kind of our time. Uh, we study the Bible, and we go to church, and we do that sort of thing, and that's a kind of work, too. But it's also like resting and not trying to drive my life forward every day of the week. What's amazing is that it's such a simple thing. It has such a low cost. In fact, Sabbath is like a gift, right? To live in a society where we get weekends, that's pretty cool. But it's the first thing that gets taken advantage of. It's the first thing when a country starts, when you watch Europe kind of walk away from the faith and become a post-Christian society, it's one of the first things to go. It's happening in America. 40 years ago, there wouldn't be a business open on a Sunday. Would you go around today? I can do all my shopping on a Sunday. There's very few businesses that don't stay open. And it's one of the first things to go. What's amazing is the first thing to go in a Christian society isn't these big, horrible things like violence on the streets. First thing to go is Sabbath. And it's one of those things where you can get kind of a thermometer of where your culture is at. Is how much do the people around you value that day as a day to not do the work that you have to do? It shouldn't be a burden. In Acts 13, 39, um, uh, Luke is making a point in the book of Acts that they didn't want to burden the Gentiles with this pharisaical law making Sabbath this oppressive day. And he says in Acts 13, 39, And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Mark 2, 27, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the other positive on the Sabbath. It's super healthy. It's a stress reliever. It has muscular relief if you do physical labor. It's good family time. It's friends time. It's time when you can build new relationships with new people. It's a spiritual relief for you. And it's actually kind of a time, if you're going to celebrate what happened last week, 
it's, it's also a time you can think about and pray what's coming. If you know you got big stuff coming, by the way, in a week, to spend a day and just kind of pray about it and put it in front of the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to handle this week and what's going on. I think that's kind of cool. Last point around Sabbath. You might have other ones that you're jotting down in your notes. Um, is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's actually our rest. Shadow? Shadow, are you being a good boy right now? No, that's not. Thank you, but... Be a good boy. Shadow's not safe yet. We're studying right now. All right. Here's some ideas for the Sabbath. You probably have a ton more, but I'm going to go through everything God did in creation in chapter 1 and just two, three ideas for what you do on a Sunday. And other cultures celebrate Sabbath on other days and whatever, and there's nothing that says what day of the week it is. It should just be the end of your week and the beginning of the next with some sort of shadow. Okay, day one. God makes light and dark. If the light is Jesus and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, we should be spending time with Jesus. So prayer, meditation, going for a hike and talking to Jesus. Day two, the heavens and the waters. We were just up at the North Shore, and the coolest part was looking out from Hawk's Rest, the bluff over Duluth, and seeing these beautiful skies, and then the sea kind of underneath it, and this perfectly straight horizon line going across, and just celebrating how amazing it is. And all I could think is we just studied this. I could think, wow, 33 cubic miles of water above my head right now. If it came down, I'd be dead. And it was a weird thought, but it's celebrating. God even keeps that where it is right now. There's this amazing little thread of atmosphere that we can live in, but we're surrounded by things that are so much larger than we are. Day three, grasses and trees, picnics on the lawn, climbing a tree even as an adult. That's a good idea. And how do you not celebrate God when you do that? So going for a walk in the gardens and parks and things like that. Day four, the light holders. Go out at night and enjoy the stars or go out during the day and just let the sun sink into your skin as a form of celebration of what God's doing. Let God talk to you. Day five, birds and fishies. There are people on Sundays that take up the idea of holding aviaries, aquariums, taking care of your animals. Most people still feed their animals. They just don't put them to work on a Sunday. But enjoying animals and pieces like that, studying them, marveling at God, Steph's dad used to sit around on the weekends and he would just study science because he loved it and he just adored doing that. Day six, animals and other humans. So horseback riding, taking your dog for a walk. That's you, Shadow. I remember growing up with Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom was on TV. And this is back when we had a society that did this. Are you smiling? Do you know this show? Yeah. It was great. It had these weird guys that talked in monotone over the top of amazing things these animals would do. And sometimes they're really violent things, and the voice stayed nice and calm through. And this is the lion of the savannah killing its prey, and they would just be this Sunday afternoon thing. But I think originally it was to celebrate animals and to do that sort of thing. Day six, spend time with other people with nothing else to do. So you're not needing to work on a project. You're just hanging out with nothing to do. That's why Levi comes over to play games with us all day. And that's a good thing. And according to the 
what it says here, this is a, if you honor this, God blesses your life. Um, I always feel complimented, and it's and I'll go on to verse four here. I always feel good when at work somebody says, Sean, I don't know how you get all this stuff done. Because I got a, especially like my second year at Bethel, I got a book published, articles out, all that sort of thing, doing that sort of like, I don't know how you get all this done. And my response is really, I don't know how I get it all done either. Like, I get up in the morning and I work, but I, I mean, I take my weekends off. I don't work evenings. Those of you in my class know, I don't really do evenings. I don't sit and text and do all that sort of thing. I take my weekends off and I do it. But when I'm there, it's like time expands. And I think that's how God does it. Because if God made time, he actually can put more time in your life. All the frantic people I know are working evenings, weekends. They're working all the time. And I think that's why they're frantic, is that God isn't blessing their work life in that kind of way. I think you can be more fruitful. Um, I told you before about the PBS thing, right? With the, did I tell you about that last week? Mm-hmm. I did. The lady from PBS, and I get the... So that's the kind of thing that a lot of faculty work the networking and conferences for hours of their life trying to make happen. And what happens for me, I get to a Sunday and say, thank you, Lord. I didn't have to do any work to make that opportunity happen. Like the publisher came to me. And I'm telling you, for 25 years in the workplace, if you want to thrive and be successful, take Sundays off. It's really easy. And you'll be amazed at how your time just, you seemingly get things done and you're blessed by it. Okay, we'll move on to verse 4. I spent too long on the Sabbath, didn't I? We could just rest there for longer. Verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Uh, Just a note there, you see how the Lord is in all capital letters there? That's not the Lord that we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we saw Elohim. And in chapter 2, we see the introduction of, it's like J-V-J-H. And the Jewish people didn't want to write the proper name of the Lord because they thought it was too holy and it was too sacred. So it gets pronounced in one of two ways in, in our world today. It either gets pronounced Jehovah, because we put the nouns in there, or the, the vowels in there, uh, or it can be pronounced Yahweh. They're both the exact same word when you see it in the Bible. So when you go to Vespers and you hear Yahweh or Jehovah in the Bible, that's the same. When you see the all capitals, Lord, that's what that is. Verse 5, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth there was no man to till the ground but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground so verse 4 this is the history um, in the Hebrew that is toledah, which is plural this is the history in the generations the families the births heaven and earth and it's like almost we've now heard all the earth was made but now we're going to get the generations of the earth we're going to get this super focus on humanity and Genesis is going to go from Adam all the way through um, the founding of the Hebrew of Israel as a nation, and we'll see all sorts of family trees. In the day that, this day here is also the Yom that we saw in, in chapter 1, which is a defined period of time. And then in verse 5, God had not caused it to rain on the earth. So rain wasn't part of the creation. So for those of you that don't like rainy days, how did everything get watered before that happened? And the answer to that, according to the Bible, is verse 6. There was a mist that went up from the earth. Here in Minnesota, we call that fog. Uh, And that fog was enough to water the plants. So if you go out in the morning and there's dew on the plants, 
that was sustaining or keeping life going at that time. So Adam didn't need to irrigate. And I thought that was kind of cool. I was just a thought. The first rain we're actually going to see, if you flip forward, the first rain we actually see is when Noah gets rained on with his big ark, which gives you a new spin on Noah. Noah was having faith that it would rain and flood the earth, and no one had seen rain before. And I thought that was kind of a cool thought. Like, So he's building an ark for something that's going to happen that didn't really exist with anybody that was on the planet at that time, which gives you a whole new level of faith. So there's rivers. So how do you get rivers without rain? And the answer to that is in Turkey. Because the rivers that we're going to see listed coming up can be spring-fed rivers. In fact, even the Great Mississippi initially was a spring-fed river. So rivers can be fed by springs, and in this part of the world, that actually happens. So a mist went up from the earth, watered the whole face of the ground. In dry climates, this is pretty much a miracle. Here it's not. If you go out to Portland, Seattle, it's kind of a daily affair. You get this misty thing in the morning, and it settles, and the sun comes, and uh, things just stay watered, and you can have jungles that way. It's not hard to do. Verse 7, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Note that our breath is still from God. I think that's kind of cool. When I wake up in the morning and I go, I mean, I'm 40. I could die of a heart attack tomorrow. It happens to us at our age. But I think, I'm still breathing. And I didn't put that breath there. I did nothing to give myself breath and put that in my lungs and make that system work. And I think that's kind of cool. Like, when we breathe, that's kind of God put that life in us, and he keeps it there, and, and he's counted every day that we're going to have. Being here where it says man became a living being is um, the word nephesh, which means soul, so a living soul. It's not our physical body we're talking about here. It's our soul that gets breathed life into, which I thought was another kind of cool thought. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put a man whom he, he had put the man whom he had formed. They used the word Adam there, so it's um, humans. Um, but in this case, it's Adam, the Adam that we'll talk about here in a second. I'm not getting into the Hebrew here because there's nothing really fancy or revelatory about it. I mean, it's pretty, it translates pretty straightforward. Verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord made every tree to grow that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Notice the tree of life comes first. I think we focus on the good and evil tree way too much, but this tree of life would have been a pretty good tree to hang out with too. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it looked like, but I can only imagine, and there's some pretty amazing trees that are on the earth today. Uh, God, But the point of it coming first, I thought, was that God's first intent is to give life and give it up on the his first intent isn't necessarily this debate over good and evil and what's going to happen with that. But we know where this is going. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and there it parted and became four river heads. The first is named Pishon. We'll come back to these. And it was one of the, the one that skirts the whole land of Halava, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gahan. It's the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So there's tons of theories around that. In fact, this is kind of a fun web search, like what are these rivers and where do they come from? 
some of the theories are that the big four rivers of the world, and this is before the flood, so the continents hadn't been the same way. So at one time there was Panagia, and all four of these rivers went in four directions. So there's lots of theories about this. Most people assume that Hadeco is actually interpreted as Tigris, and it's the Tigris River, which is east of Assyria today. It's in the same place. Kush or Ethiopia is an area we call in Africa today. So now we've got problems because the Nile doesn't come anywhere near the same geographic location as the Euphrates and Tigris. Euphrates and Tigris actually both start kind of up in Turkey, um, but the Nile does not. It starts in a completely different place. Um, the modern Euphrates and the Tigris River both drain out to the Arabian Sea. Uh, both come from the same mountains, along with there's other rivers that go in different directions that come from those same mountains. So if you look in eastern Turkey, there's a river called the Yenis or the Kalian River, which goes out to the Mediterranean Sea. The Kissermark River goes to the Black Sea, and the Aras River goes to the Caspian Sea. So there actually is a spot on the planet Earth where there's four rivers that go in four different directions, and they flow out to these four major seas in the Middle East, which is kind of cool, except for the fact that as of the year 2000, there was no gold in Turkey. So the one cue we have here is we should find onyx and gold in this area. So I started looking. Have they found more gold in Turkey? Um, as of 2015, between the year 2000 when Turkey had no gold mines, they actually discovered gold. And between 2000 and 2015, they found so much gold in Turkey, this is good for Turkey, that they became the number one producer of gold in 15 years in the country of Turkey. They haven't found onyx yet, but I won't be surprised if and when they do. I'll be like, yeah, that's where the rivers are. That said, we don't, I'm guessing this is all me being a geek. We don't know where the Garden of Eden was. There was a flood. Things got moved around. We have no idea. I wouldn't pretend that I knew, but I think it's really cool that there's a spot like that on the planet. It's also up in those same mountains, by the way, that we think Noah's Ark is up in an iceberg. Have you ever read that stuff? They've got, I don't know how hokey that is or whatever it is, but I think that would be really cool if that were the case too. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And this I, well, our job is to work. Part of what we have in life, one of the benefits and glories of life is to do something. And humans were created with a purpose to tend and keep this garden. Note that we were made to do this work. We're not made to be lazy. The lazier we are, the worse our self-esteem gets. And psychologists have seen that all over the place. One of the best things you can do to help with your self-esteem is get busy. Do something. Um, the labor, however, was to maintain the garden, not to struggle with the garden. And there's a difference there. So when we have a house again, because we're kind of here temporarily, there's a huge difference between growing, say, beets and cabbage to growing, like, raspberries and strawberries, right? Raspberries tend themselves. All you do is go out once a year and chop them down, and raspberries just produce amazing amounts of food that's delicious, and you do nothing. I think raspberries were in the Garden of Eden. Cabbage were not. Those things suck. You have to not only plant them, but you have to de-weed them like every day because they need some space around them. And then you get to the end of the season, you have to pick them like on the right day where they get filled with maggots and nasty things. They're a horrible plant to maintain. We tried growing corn one year up in Centerville. 
we had this squirrel that jumped on our fence and would take superhero leaps onto our corn, drag the plant down and eat it. And they would go out there and eat the corn about a week before it was at human ripeness. But apparently squirrel ripeness is just before human ripeness. We lost our whole corn crop. And this is the curse of farming that's going to come later is that we lose crops. But there are some crops like raspberries, they got thorns to protect them and they're delicious and humans pretty much go in and can eat them right off the vine. No work, no labor. Just my theory is that before the fall, Adam's work was to go out and tend this garden. It wasn't that he had to struggle with cabbage. It wasn't that weeds would overtake his plants and that sort of thing. And there, are, and we still have a lot of those plants today. So this idea of stewardship to tend things is not to abuse them. Uh, we see a lot of stuff that people blame uh, ecological disasters on humans kind of raking the earth with some sort of human dominance thing, and that gives us the right to be bad to the earth. It doesn't. Uh, Adam's call was to tend and keep it, not to shred it and destroy it. Right? There's a huge difference there. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you can freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. For in the day that you eat. Note that the way that sentence is constructed, God knows that humans are going to eat. Because he says, for in the day that you eat, not if you're going to eat, if you ever eat of it, says, in the day when you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. This is the beginning of death. And this is, I think, a key concept for Christians. Death isn't part of the deal. It's not what God intended for us. So as we get old and my beard goes gray and I fade and I die, that's not what God intended. He gave us bodies that regenerate. Every 30 days, every single cell in your body is replaced and you should theoretically be able to stay full-grown or whatever that is. I think it's like 17 for women and like 21 for men. You should stay at fully mature. Your bodies are designed to regenerate themselves every 30 days. So why do we decay and die? What happens? And why do we break down? And why does that actually happen? It shouldn't. It should basically be that if you're eating a healthy diet, you know, I suppose you could still get fat at age 20, but you can do that. But you should stay healthy and live no reason you should perish and die but it wasn't God's plan so why did God put it there and I think this is one of the toughest things for believers not new believers we just love that Jesus loves us and yes we'll follow the Lord that's a really cool thing but there's a point where you you need to there's that new believer kind of milk that you need to get into the faith and do it but as you mature in the faith you start to wonder well why did God put a tree there in the first place and that's a really tough thing ultimately the answer to this is if God's going to make us in his image and we have the potential to be in his likeness, there has to be a self-determinant entity there. There has to be an authentic decision to make. So if God puts us in the perfect garden, gives us all the food we need, and we have no choices to make other than enjoy God's creation, then there's really no choice. And when there's no choice, there's really no love. You just have little robots. Wherever God goes, human allows... Or God, Wherever God goes humans are allowed more and more freedom. And I think that's true historically too, where you see Jewish and Christian people going, people get freedoms. So where the gospel starts to wane, we see human um, freedoms start to wane too. And we start to see that historically. Probably the worst example of that 
are formally Christian nations that turn to things like socialism, right? Where the Christian population goes down enough to where these other things come in, and then that usually turns very quickly into tyranny. Communist Russia, communist China, um, fascist Germany, fascist Italy, these things happen really quick, and the first thing that goes are humans' freedoms. In the U.S., I would argue we're seeing that right now. As we have less and less faith in each other as humans, we get less and less freedom and more and more government regulation. And it seems to go up because the more you have humans doing nasty things, the more you have to create rules and police systems to enforce law and order because humans don't do the right thing on their own. I have a few more thoughts on that, but essentially, like, that makes sense. I'm going to skip down then. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. God sees that it's not good for humans to be alone. This is the first time we see not good spoken. Like, oh, that's not good. Um, We know psychologically that when humans are left on their own, we go insane. Something in our brain breaks when you put us in isolation. And that we're actually meant to be with each other. But we're not just meant to be with each other like with friends and acquaintances and families. I'm going to argue as a man who's been married for 25 years, we're meant to be with each other in a married relationship too. But there's a certain spiritual vulnerability that you put yourself in when you commit your life to them that's kind of awesome and kind of hard to explain. But it's part of the mission. So now we have a new mission as humans, which is to be intimate with each other at different levels. So not only intimate with a body in a church, but intimate with our friends and family, and also intimate with our spouses. So we're gonna get someone that should be a helper. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam. Now we're talking about a person, Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no helper found comparable to him. I think some of the animals come close. There are people that talk to their animals. So this is common that people talk to their pets. There's crazy cat ladies that they get companion no no real ones, Shadow. That get companionship from their from their pets. We talk to Shadow. And it's weird because he looks back at us like he understands what we're saying. Right, Shadow? <laughs> and they respond to commands. Like, can Shadow roll over? Very good point. But there's a recognition that a lot of animals have when you talk to them. Horses, cows, dogs. And I my thought is here we are before the fall and Adams are the animals are theoretically just vegetarians and they're not eating each other. I have this dream that someday in a new creation will once again be able to talk to animals and they'll actually understand us and hear us a lot like dogs which means we're keeping pet pumas pet tigers pet bears and they know that they're not supposed to eat us and i think that would be for me that's kind of cool main point out of verse 19 is this adam guy had to be one of the smartest people ever you think of the naming that had this task of naming every animal had to be enormous and you think he must have been a, absolutely had a wonderful, glorious mind on this guy. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, 
This is the first example of surgery. And he slept and he took one of his ribs. The word ribs there is actually uh, means side or part of. It's the word in the Hebrew, it's selah, um, which, mean, which means a chamber, a beam or plank, or a part of the body. In English, somewhere along the line, they just put ribs, which I think is really confusing for people because it causes every young man under 10 to start counting their ribs, um, which is an odd thing because it doesn't logically make sense that the child of someone would, like if I lost my thumb, my kids wouldn't be one thumb people. They would be born with two thumbs. So it's an odd thing, but it's only in the English where this is translated as rib, as actual, but it means part of the side. It could be that God just took a cell out of Adam or something to that effect. But it says it closed up the flesh in its place, which means maybe that's why we have one appendix. I don't know. Then the rib, which the Lord had taken from man, he made a woman. And he brought her in, and he brought her to the man. Every cell in our, the reason why I say a cell is because every cell in our body has the DNA code for the whole body. And you could theoretically clone us with one cell. And it won't be long, we'll figure out how to do it with more than just sheep. Um, Verse 23, and Adam said, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, which the word is ishish, because she was taken out of man, which is ish. The word woman and man actually are from the same root word. Ish is not Adam. They're different words. In other words, God has designated two sexes. That's a super hot button issue right now. We can debate it later if you want to. But he gives each of those genders a title. In verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. In the Hebrew, literally translated, this is, and again, Hebrew has a lot less words in the middle. It's separate dad and mom, join ish to unify flesh. In other words, leave your mom and dad and go have sex. I mean, there's really a really clear translation here. So two becoming one flesh is a very nice Puritan way to translate the Bible into coming together nicely. But there has there's this thing where these two people come together and actually have sex with each other. Is somebody covering Shadow's ears? He's only six. One interesting thing with verse 24 in particular is it almost reads like a commentary, like we're going through this kind of process in the writing style. And it's like this extra note gets added in that further defines marriage. And if you look back at verse 18, remember the problem here was being alone. And the solution instead of being alone is to being joined to one flesh. So there's this really unique kind of intimacy. I could talk a little bit. Well, we'll do verse 25 because in case you didn't get it in verse 24. And they were both naked. And the man and his wife were not ashamed. Um... And again, this is PG-13 at best. There's something really cool about sex that's amazing, and I and it's worth waiting for, because with sex comes intimacy, and intimacy with another person is super cool. And if you can be naked around somebody and not be ashamed or not be embarrassed, there is total trust between you and that person, right? If I ran around on the streets of Minneapolis naked, I guarantee not only would people be upset by that but I might even get arrested by that but in marriage there's something where you can just feel comfortable with people and it's part of I think that that relationship I'd also venture to say 
being naked here. Just a little longer shower. We don't really have like child care. We, should, we could hire a dog setter and do that. I would also venture to say here that being naked is not just physical nakedness because so far in Genesis we've never seen just physicality. It's been body, mind, spirit in one, two, three. God is body, mind, spirit. Humans are body, mind, spirit. God rested, rested, rested. And we see that, and I think that there's no reason to think that pattern is gone here. The part of what you're naked with with your spouse is spiritual and mental. Like I even tell people at work when they say, don't tell anybody about this. I say, I tell my wife. Whatever I know, my wife knows. So if you're not okay with that, don't tell me. Because it's not, what you think is private is not from my wife. So there's one person walking on this earth I can be completely candid with and say everything I think, and she'll forgive my sin, maybe, but she'll at least be honest with me if I am. Like, she, does, she doesn't have to agree with me on everything, right? So if I am in there, she can point out, and I can have someone who I, know, I don't doubt her love even when she's critiquing me or arguing with me, right? And with a lot of people, you get into an argument with someone, and you go home that night, and you're thinking, are we still going to be friends after this, or is this a parting of ways for the rest of our lives? But you have one person in the world where you don't have to worry about that. I hope your marriage counselor, as you get into that, starts talking about those things. But I also think it's spiritual nakedness. Like when I'm having a down day, I can just tell stuff like, I'm feeling really broken today. Can you pray for me? And it's one, and you can actually say, this is what I'm struggling with, and here's where I'm having troubles. And you can have that intimacy at a spiritual level too. And I don't think we get that even with our best friends. There isn't that total kit. But if I'm with Steph for the rest of my life, I got nothing to hide. Right? And if I trust that we both made a covenant that this is forever, then I really have no reason to hide anything. I can share my most ugly thoughts and say, is that that ugly? Am I that abnormal? Those private things that I held for so long and just share those with your spouse. Maybe not on your wedding night because, you know, that'd freak them out. But there's that point where you're like, man, I'm thinking this and am I wrong? And usually Steph will be like, no, I was actually thinking the same thing. Like, and it gives you wisdom as a couple. Because when you're dealing with people at church or at work and whatever, you have that other person that you can bounce things off of, and they say, maybe going in and yelling at them isn't the right solution. Maybe you could try this, this, or this, but you have somebody that has a level head even in the most stressful of situations. Good boy, Shadow. We'll wrap up here pretty quick. Jesus got in trouble over this too. Because the Pharisees got him and they're trying to catch him on all these things. Remember the time when he come, they say, what happens if somebody is married and then the husband dies and the next brother marries the woman, then he dies, and, then, and they went through like seven, so she now has seven husbands, and they all die. What happens in heaven? And they thought they had trapped Jesus. Jesus goes right back to Genesis 2. In fact, Jesus does with, this, with the Pharisees a lot as he goes back to Genesis and says, this is what God really intended. If you'd read the book, you would know this. Um, And frankly, this is how I answer a lot of my friends in academia that aren't Christians, is I'll say, if you actually read the Bible, it doesn't say that. It says this. And that's, again, Jesus gets killed for this. So it's not like you want to get in these arguments with people. 
Um, but Matthew 19, he answered them and said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. And whatever God's joined together, let not man separate. Today in America, divorce is pretty much normalized. It used to be kind of this odd thing when I was a kid. When someone in the family got divorced, it was like hot news. It was gossip, like this is a big deal. So-and-so just got divorced. Today, divorce is barely even news. In a family, it just happens, and we've normalized it. It's one of the indications that America is getting further and further away from the biblical roots. We're making covenants, and we're breaking them, and it's terrifying. And I don't know your parents' situation. You might have gone through this kind of thing, uh, where your parents get a divorce. Um, it's not what God intended. And it breaks things. It hurts kids. It's hard for the family. It's not always a healthy thing. We're supposed to marry and then have sex. Yet in America today, it's almost, there's pressure to have sex before you get married, which is really odd because there's no evidence that that's healthy in any way. In fact, it hurts a lot of people. It's the cause of the number of problems in both men and women psychologically where they go to counselors because they've been messed up over this stuff. And it makes people really uncomfortable to talk about. Again, I'm not trying to tick people off, and I don't know your sexual histories. But it's something that can really cause deep loneliness, eating disorders, hurt and pain, trauma in situations. It makes it harder to give the gift of love to people around you because the trust piece is broken. It causes hardships with intimacy and even having true companionship with other people of the same sex. There's tons of problems with it. But the Bible gives clear direction. You're supposed to marry and then have sex. That's the intent of God. But again, part of what Jesus was saying with people is, look, for a thousand years we've fallen short of what God wanted. That's We're all in that boat. But to say this is what God wants and then hypocritically say something else. Remember when Jesus had the prostitute come? Jesus didn't go at the prostitute and say, well, I said not to have sex with men. He actually showed her grace and mercy because the trauma and hurt in this woman's life was horrible. And his response to it wasn't to agree with the Pharisees that wanted to stone her, but basically turned to the Pharisees and said, those of you without sin, why don't you throw the first stone? Drew something in the dirt, and there's tons of theories about that. And they all just walked away. And part of it is even these holy, righteous people had this sin in their heart where this is kind of a broken part of our lives. It's also a super private part of our lives. And part of being joined to one flesh with another person, the joy of it is, that doesn't have to be private anymore. You get to share that part of your life with one other person, and it's kind of cool. Christians have also killed other people. I'm just trying to get in this because I think at the same po- point that the Bible's super clear about this, we have the on the other side of the equation, we have right, self-righteous people that get on people's case when we stumble and fall in this area. But God didn't intend murder. Yet there's been war, and God's actually, we'll see in the Old Testament, there's times where that war kind of has to happen to save the Israelite people, and God actually condones it. But the command, the intent is that we're not, even the animals weren't killing each other. That part of that idea of death wasn't what was made or intended. Christians still get divorced, it happens, but it's not what God intended for us. So there's this idea that even though things are broken, we can be redeemed. The point of this, at least the way I would read this, is The ideal here is love. And the goal of all Christians should be to move towards a loving relationship that's going to last till the end of your days. So even if Katie gets divorced, 
she's still my daughter, I still love her, and my prayer for her is to still that she will find a loving relationship that'll take her through to the end of her life, even if that first one was a disaster. Okay, that said, I told you we're going to get to really some weird stuff tonight. The point is, what's the plan? What's God's plan for us? God keeps going back to this plan again and again and again. So I wanted to go through a few of the features. Verses 1 through 3, the plan is that we have days of rest. Verse 7, that we breathe. Verse 9, and I think I'm in chapter 1 here, that we have great and fresh food to eat. I think that's a good thing. The plan was in verses 10 through 14, healthy land and water that we can be keeping and tending. In verse 15, we tend to keep that land. Verses 19 and 20, we have helper animals to live with and hang out with, like dogs that have become distractions. In verse 20, we're supposed to think. Look at what Adam does with naming all the animals. The intention is for us to do these things. Verse 22, loving relationships. And all of this is a free will to walk and talk and love God. That's the plan. That plan is amazing. And if you think, boy, if we would just live life the way God told us to, we could be really blessed, and it would be what God calls it. That's very good. Everything else, and I think this is how Jesus hands it, everything else is because we as humans screw up the plan. But God made a plan that's pretty amazing. And the closer we get to it in our lives, again, resting, breathing, eating great food, hanging out with land and water, tending and keeping or doing our work, hanging out with some animals once in a while, thinking and using our minds, loving relationships with other people, including that one special person that's that you're going to be one flesh with, and then having that time to walk and talk with God. That's the garden. And I think that's about as cool as life can get. And the more of our life that we can get rid of that's not those things, and the more of our life that we can make that are those things, the happier people we are. So I'm going to finish up with tips for a long life. I went online again. This is the best of secular planning for your lives. How can you live a long and happy life? But I want you to listen for that list that I just gave you because it's right in the best psychology that we have today. So they look at people who live long and then they look at what they do and they, they figure it out. So God asks us to enjoy this garden. We have things to eat. We're supposed to enjoy creation. We get married. We tend the earth. We name animals. We take time to relax. We talk with God. We serve him. We're mentored by him and we have intimacy with other people. That's God's list. Here is Sally Bear's list, a health expert. We're only supposed to eat till we're 80% full, but eat. Vegetables are better for meat, for long life and health. Liquids should have minerals in them or herbal supplements in them. In other words, river water or something that has some minerals and plants in it. We're supposed to eat eggs that are grass-fed, fruits and yogurts. Getting married is an indicator of a longer life. And this is, she's not advocating for marriage. It's just statistically that's what makes you live longer. Getting a pet helps you live longer. Moving on a regular basis, which I would call tending and keeping things. Using your mind on a regular basis, including uh, neuroplasticity activities and crossword puzzles and things like that. Laughing helps you to live longer if you laugh. Breathing, meditating, and or singing out loud helps you to live longer. Prayer helps you to live longer. Again, this is not a Christian website. This is secular. Being selfless in your dealings with other people helps you to live longer. Finding a mentor 
and having intimacy with other folks that we walk around with. The list hasn't changed. So even if we look at non-Christian living, the things that help us live longer haven't really changed. In other words, God baked it into who we are and how he designed us. So if we do got what God planned, we're actually wired to be happier people. And if we live in his law, we're wired to be happier people too, which is why I don't get it when you find people that don't like God's law. David sung about God's law. He rejoiced in God's law. Because the whole intent of God's law is that we live longer and happier lives. Unless, of course, you want to do whatever you think is you see fit in your own eyes, and that's a path too. But it doesn't necessarily always help you live longer and stronger. All right, so I laid all that out. I'm curious to see what you all think, but let's say a word of prayer and we'll wrap up. Dear Lord and King, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word as it is, as it challenges us, Lord, and it uh, pushes our sentiments. Lord, I've struggled to live under your law for years and years and years, and I will for years more. Um, Lord, you know my heart. You know I'm not perfect, and you know I've failed. But, Lord, I love the ideal, and I love what you made for us. And I just pray I can be closer to that. So as I go through this week, Lord, help me to see those things. Help all of us to see areas in our life that bear fruit and areas in our life that just cause anxiety and stress. Lord, help us to be discerners of that in our life that we can see those things, Lord, and we can come closer to your plan for what we are. Lord, I pray for all of the young people in this room. I pray for healthy, intimate relationships. I pray for, um, as they move forward and, you know, uh, uh, with their boy and girlfriends and they move towards marriage, Lord, I just pray that they are healthy with those relationships, that they follow your plan in those things, not because it's easy, um, but because it's, it actually leads to a happier and healthier marriage and life. Um, Lord, I pray that we can listen to the Sabbath. We can take a day and honor it as you honored it and be blessed as you have blessed that day. Um, Lord, that there's a law in the universe that Sabbath is important for us, Lord, and it goes to us physically, mind, body, and spirit. It's important. And so are our intimate relationships with the others. Lord, help us to be forgiving with each other, to hear each other's stories, to love one another, and Lord, as we spend time every week together to continue to grow closer as a body and as a people. Um, help us to lift each other up, encourage each other, Lord, and remind each other of what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. So what did you think about Sabbath?